This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Majority Report, Moyers and Company, Comedian Lee Camp, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Young Turks. And a warning that this episode contains one of the most forbidden statements in American society. So, brace yourself for that one. It was bad enough the Republicans from Newt Gingrich on down derided Barack Obama as the food stamp president during the last campaign, but now they're going to try to take food stamps literally out of the hands of the hungry. On Wednesday, the House Ag Committee voted to cut $21 billion out of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which is the fancy name for food stamps. The cuts would yank food stamps away from 2 million people. And get this, 200,000 poor and hungry kids would no longer be able to get free school lunches. Republicans like to spin stories the way Ronald Reagan used to, saying that lottery winners shouldn't have access to food stamps. Well, I doubt there are many lottery winners getting this benefit. They also say that we need to cut food stamps to reduce the budget deficit. Well, the deficit isn't the problem they make it out to be, and food stamps are a tiny, tiny portion of federal expenditures. The poor and the hungry shouldn't have to suffer because of Wall Street's excesses and George Bush's wars. And if Republicans wanted to make reasonable cuts out of the farm bill, they should have just gone after corporate welfare to the giant food companies. But no, they'd rather take a poor kid's meal away. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Here in D.C., the kickoff to the event surrounding Memorial Day happens at the D.C. War Memorial to local victims of the First World War. Uh, and that memorial is not the huge new National World War II Memorial, which you see here, or the world-famous, very moving Vietnam War Veterans Memorial Wall. Um, it is uh, the much more subtle and less famous structure that you see here. But the World War I Memorial in D.C. Uh, is lovely, um, and it is there in a very leafy spot on the National Mall. And a ceremony there every year kicks off the week that culminates in Memorial Day. Well, this year, the people that organized and did that kickoff event for the nation, the people who took on that responsibility for our country, uh, were these ladies, just them, alone. Instead of a formal ceremony with a bugler playing taps, instead of dignitaries assembled to hear speeches in a formal program, instead of a crowd waiting there to hear the speeches or, you know, public prayer or something. No, th no this year, um, these three women, along with a military.com reporter who was one of the few people there to cover the event, they just held their own brief moment of silence after putting wreaths at the memorial. Just them. This year, this commemoration became a freelance gig just for those patriotic Americans working on their own because the National Park Service, which usually pays a, about a thousand bucks to cover the cost of those proceedings, this year, the National Park Service could not do it. This year, the sequester, that nearly universally agreed upon to be stupid, self-inflicted problem we made for ourselves in Washington, made it so the Park Service had to cut back and could not pay for that program this year. 
also today because of the same self-inflicted Washington policy that nobody thinks is a good idea, but that we're doing anyway. Also today, the EPA stopped working on some of their criminal investigations. And today, the EPA did no site inspections anywhere in the country. Also today, the White House Office of Management and Budget did not do any managing of the budget, which means, again, because of this stupid budget-related problem that no one said they wanted but have to have anyway, the people who supposedly work on fixing stupid budget problems could not even work today because of the stupid budget problem. And if you needed help on a tax-related matter, today was also not your day. Today, all 400 taxpayer assistance centers across the country were closed. If you had to call the IRS toll-free hotline for help about something, it was closed. If you needed to contact the IRS Taxpayer Advocate Service, it was closed. If you are waiting on your tax return, I'm sorry to say today, zero tax returns were processed. Today was a furlough day, an unpaid mandatory day off work for the IRS and other major federal agencies, leaving 115,000 federal employees out of work for the day. It's the biggest government shutdown since the 90s. Now, the IRS, of course, is embroiled in its big Washington scandal right now. The IRS executive who took the fifth so dramatically at that congressional hearing earlier this week, uh, she did not get fired, but she did get put on administrative leave, and somebody else has now replaced her in her IRS job. More congressional hearings on the IRS are expected at the beginning of June, but the agency in the meantime is responding to a Matterhorn-sized mountain of demands from Congress. Committee staff members are now doing interviews with IRS staff members, both in Washington and in at least the Cincinnati field office. Of course, none of that work happened today because the IRS had a furlough day today. Regardless of who's going to get blamed for the fact that this IRS scandal happened, the way that they are going to fix it and make sure it never happens again is likely to be something having to do with increased training, right? Increased training, particularly for the kinds of low-level IRS employees who we know carried out this policy that has upset everybody in Washington so much. An especially hit area in the IRS budget by the sequester is the IRS training budget. So we're doing less of that now than ever. Times like this in the news are sometimes overwhelming. It's, it's almost like the new problems we are creating can barely keep up with the old ones we are not fixing. The New Yorker's James Surowiecki figured out who's to blame for unsafe working conditions for garment workers. It's you, if you wear clothing. In the May 20th edition, Surowiecki explains that the problem isn't so much evil factory owners as a system that's great at getting Western consumers what they want, but leaves developing world workers toiling in misery. He adds, quote, most of us have a sense that low prices in Dubuque have something to do with low wages in DACA, but that's just one aspect of the pressure that we as consumers exert on global supply chains. Our insatiable demand for variety and novelty has led to ever shorter product life cycles, close quote.
Now, he's willing to concede that corporate owners might share some of the blame, but, quote, as long as consumers and companies insist on the lowest price and endless variety, there will always be factories that are willing to cut corners to get the business, close quote. Well, this is a popular corporate line. USA Today ran an article May 17th with the awful headline, Will 1,127 Deaths Move the Needle for U.S. Shoppers? But the thing about saying consumers and companies together create the situation is that when we talk about consumers insisting on something, that's a metaphor. Consumers buy things or don't. They don't tell the seller to change the price or how to arrange their supply chain. Corporate owners do that. Even if you allow the notion that consumers insist on a certain price for clothing by not wanting to pay more, you cannot say they insist that the wages paid to workers be just 1% to 3% of that price. The owner does that, too. Now, could consumer outrage force changes in the way corporations do business? Possibly. News coverage that lays the blame on our insatiable demand seems designed to deflect that possibility. why I also raise that is for this uh, story that um, came out in this month's Science Magazine. German researchers have found in an experimental setup, or an experiment, I should say, that at least indicates that markets, participation in markets, markets make us less moral. Now, why is this important? Because the libertarians would have you believe that the marketplace will self-regulate, that the marketplace, uh, that people will pay a price if they're immoral or they take advantage of other people or they sell bad products. Now, this, of course, presumes some type of symmetry of information, which we know does not exist. If I take my water to a private uh, testing company that is not in any way regulated uh, by the EPA or following EPA standards. And the guy says to me, I uh, tried your water out, it's perfect. It may be 30 years down the road before I find out that I've gotten cancer because of the crap that was in this water. And I may not even be able to attribute it to my water. There's plenty of examples, but that's the first one that comes to mind. So in this um, experiment, German researchers took a first group, three groups. First were presented, uh, the first group was presented with two options. Receive 13 bucks for accepting the death of a lab mouse or forgo the money and save the mouse's life. 46% said they would accept the mouse's death in exchange for that $13. 46%. So, you know, some people have no problem with the death of a mouse for, for a couple bucks. I'm not judging. 
That's not the point of this study. There was a second group of people who participated in a bilateral market scenario. Just two people. One buyer, one seller interacted directly with each other. The seller was given a mouse and told the life of the mouse is entrusted into your care. But you could sell it to the buyer for a price as far up as, you know, about $15. And the buyer got to keep the difference between the 13 and the 15. Or I'm sorry, $26. And so the uh, buyer got to keep the difference between $26 and $13. If they decided not to make a deal, neither person got any money, and the mouse was allowed, allowed to live. In that group, 72% of sellers were willing to kill the mouse for the money. For the same $13, assuming they could get the highest price possible, you had... 32% more people, 30% more people, more or less, willing to kill the mouse. They had a third group, which was a multilateral market. Seven buyers, nine sellers that could trade amongst themselves. And 76%, again, decided they'd kill the mouse for 13 bucks. In a marketplace, it was found, people on average valued the mouse's life less than they did when individually asked. This is evidence, say the researchers, that market interaction lowers moral values as compared to individual actions. If you perceive killing the mouse as to be somewhat immoral for you to, for you to just get a couple of bucks. The experiments were run again, and this time, instead of killing the mouse, it was just coupons. You would lose a coupon instead of the mouse being killed. And the coupons were basically valueless. With a non-living subject, market sellers gave up the coupons about as often as participants acting individually. You follow that. With a non-living subject, market sellers gave up the coupons about as often as participants acting individually. In other words, there was no difference between when it was just Someone asked directly to give up your coupon for 13 bucks. Someone in a market with two people give up your coupon for 13 bucks. There was no 76 to 46 percent disparity, which shows that when an individual is faced with this question of giving up the mouse for 13 bucks, they are less comfortable doing so. They feel some more uh, moral compulsion to basically give up the cash and allow the mouse to live. Scientists have a couple of questions as to, they have a couple of ideas, they have no proof as to why this is the case, but they suspect that when you're a interacting in a market, whether it's with one other person or multiple people, you disperse responsibility. It's not just me killing that mouse. This guy's willingly participating in it, too. So it can't be that bad. It's what we know about corporations. They're explicitly less liable 
individuals involved in a corporation. They're explicitly less liable, and they certainly have the tendency to do worse things because they're looking across the table, and their co-workers doing it too. Yeah, so we put out that uh, Ford Pinto with the exploding rear. Everybody around here seems to have no problem with it. I'm not going to have a problem with it either. So it's uh, just an interesting implication of market forces and why we need regulation on market forces. This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, drop me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You and absorb your fucking powers. I put in hour after hour. Let's be crystal clear. I'm gonna get there if it takes a day or 50 years. It's not only our banking system that remains questionable and shaky. It's the whole of our economy. That complex mixmaster of capital and labor, prices and production, goods and services, rewards and punishments, largely driven by private decisions in what has been defined mythologically as the free market. Capitalism, it turns out, is a capital idea if you have the capital. Which brings us back to Richard Wolff. I say back because, as many of you will recall, this provocative and imaginative economist was here just about a month ago to lay out, in his words, how capitalism has hit the fan. Here's the centerpiece of his argument. For the majority of people, capitalism is not delivering the goods. It is delivering, arguably, the bads. And so we have this disparity getting wider and wider between those for whom capitalism continues to deliver the goods by all means, but a growing majority in the society which isn't getting the benefit is in fact facing harder and harder times and that's what provokes some of us to begin to say it's a systemic problem. My conversation with Richard Wolff opened such a world of ideas that on the spot I asked him to return and I ask you to send us the questions you'd put to him. Your response was as overwhelming as it was smart and informed. Just take a look at some of the letters, hundreds of them, that we printed out from our website, BillMoyers.com. Thanks to every one of you who wrote. We'll get to some of these in just a minute, and to even more of them with Richard Wolf in a live chat next Tuesday at our website, BillMoyers.com. Richard Wolf taught economics for 35 years at the University of Massachusetts and is now a visiting professor at the New School here in New York City, teaching a special course on the economic meltdown. His books and DVDs include Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, and Capitalism Hits the Fan, The Global Economic Meltdown and What to Do About It. Welcome back, Richard. Thank you, Bill. And let's move on to questions from the viewers who tuned into our conversation three weeks ago Hundreds of them responded. Here's Jose from Naples, Florida, and Kristen from Joplin, Missouri. Hello, Professor Wolf. On the last show, you mentioned how you were against regulation. 
I agree with you on the most part that regulation has been a failure. What would be your alternative to regulation? Without regulation, how do we respond to the widening economic disparity in our society? You said last time you were skeptical about regulation because the regulated found ways to evade, overcome, or negate it. Yes, uh, skepticism is the politest way I know how to say (laughs) this. I think that we have now learned in our society that regulating big corporations and regulating wealthy folks is an exercise in futility. It'll work for a while, but those folks have the incentive and the resources to work around it, to evade them. It's as if the whole meltdown of 2008 and 9 hadn't happened, as if all the risk-taking can continue and all the uh, massaging of the internal rules of the banks can be manipulated, all of that. It seems to me we've learned the lesson that regulation is usually coming too late after, in a sense, the disaster has happened, and then it is evaded and avoided and watered down. It doesn't work, and we have to learn the lesson. So I would respond by saying we have to make a more basic change. Instead of constantly coming too late to the regulation activity, let's change the way decisions are made so we don't have to be constantly after people regulating them in this kind of sad effort that never quite succeeds. Let's change the basic decision. I thought Glass-Steagall worked fairly well from the time it was enacted in the Depression with Roosevelt to 1999 when Bill Clinton and Congress uh, repealed it. Well, I don't want to get into a dispute with you, Bill. I think well, right there was ahead, a long, everybody else does. <laughs> I think there was a long history of evasion. In other words, ways were found in the 60s and 70s, long before the repeal. Ways were found by banks, setting up investment banks, setting up new financial institutions to get around, if not the letter, then certainly the intent of that kind of regulation. When it was found possible politically, first to weaken Glass-Steagall and then eventually to repeal it, well, that was even better. But basically, the minute the regulation was set, the regulated industries took it as a, a problem to be solved. Then they hired the economists like me, the accountants, the lawyers, and all the other specialists to figure out how to get around it. And armies of lobbyists, let's face it. Armies of lobbyists to make sure that the laws get massaged and the rules get adjusted so that they can get around it. That's why we keep having financial scandal after financial scandal, hearings after hearings. After a while, when you keep doing this, you realize that even if you get some benefit, and I see your point from a regular for a while it's only a matter of time and now that the corporations have gotten really good at getting around it the time for them has been reduced and so we're back to the question isn't there a better way than letting them do their thing and coming late to the table with another regulation okay here's Martha from Natick Massachusetts I see a perfect storm coming capitalism is predicated on unlimited growth But we live in a finite environment, and we seem to have a dysfunctional democracy unable to resolve that contradiction. How do you see climate change and our diminishing natural resources, such as fossil fuels and water, impacting this crisis in capitalism? Capitalism is a system geared up to doing three things on the part of business. Get more profits, grow your company, and get a larger market share. Those are the driving bottom line issues. 
Corporations are successful or not if they succeed in getting these objectives met. That's what their boards of directors are chosen to do. That's what their shareholders expect. That's the way the system works. If along the way they have to sacrifice either the well-being of their workers or the well-being of the planet or the environmental conditions, they may feel very bad about it, and I know plenty of them who do. But they have no choice, and they will explain, if they're honest, that that's the way this system works. So we have despoiled our, our environment in a classic way. That's why we have huge cleanup funds. That's why we have so many problems. That's why we have to impose all kinds of costs on, on companies now to deal with this problem. So I'm not very hopeful. I don't think this is a system that has a place in it for us to seriously deal with the limits to growth, with the need to preserve our environment, to take care of our health as a people, because we have a system that pushes forward with a kind of intensity that pushes those issues to the side. Janet from Woolwich, Maine. If you could be president with a cooperative Congress, what are the three most critical things you would do to ensure that we have a healthy economy that is sustainable, particularly in light of a growing aging population? Thank you. I would pick the following three. Number one, solve the unemployment problem. In a sense, it's the most urgent one we have. If the private sector, and here I'm paraphrasing Franklin Roosevelt in the 30s, if the private sector either cannot or will not provide the work for millions of Americans who want the work, then it's the job of the government to do it because no one else is. And if I were president, I would follow Roosevelt and immediately create and fill millions, millions, I'm talking 15 to 20 million jobs in the United States right away. Number two, I would make it what some have called a Green New Deal. That is, the major thing these people would be doing would be to deal with the environmental crisis that we have, to change the way we use energy, for example, just to give one, to give us the proper mass transportation system that advanced countries in other parts of the world already have that we ought to have. Millions of people could go to work producing that system and give us a way to move our goods and move our people around the society using less oil and gas, with less damage of injury and death, the way our car-driven system has, with less pollution of our environment. Here's a way to benefit people on many scales while we put to work those who want to work with the raw materials and tools that are available. And the third thing I would do is take a page from Italy, yes, Italy, who passed a law in 1985 called the Marcora Law, which said the following wonderful thing. If you're unemployment, you have a choice in Italy. You don't just have to collect your weekly unemployment check the way we do here in the United States. You have an option. If you get together with 10 other unemployed workers and you agree to do the following thing, the government will give you three years of your unemployment payments up front, right now in a lump sum. What you have to agree to is that together with at least 10 other people, you're going to start your own cooperative business, which you all together work. The feeling in Italy was if you give people a chance to own and operate their own business collectively, they'll be more committed to it, more invested in it, more likely to make a go of it than simply collecting a check. And meanwhile, they'll be producing things, and they'll feel better about themselves, and they'll have a more productive role in the community. If you give everybody a vested interest in their enterprise, they work harder, they work better, because it's theirs. 
They're not just working for the man. They are working for themselves, which is a dream Americans have had way back from the beginning. Six years ago, the United States was less unequal than the capitalisms in Europe. Now we are more unequal. So, yes, it is possible to have capitalism with a much more human face than the ones we have here in the United States and in Britain particularly, where we have allowed things to go in a very different direction. But isn't Italy in a mess today? We all know about the Euro crisis. Those governments are in trouble. Austerity is being imposed throughout the Mediterranean area. We have this explosion with Cyprus, explosion of fear with Cyprus being bailed out and the depositors in the banks having to contribute to the cost of bailing out. A tiny island threatens to bring the Euro system down again. Absolutely, and that Cyprus story is extremely important. Even though it's a very small country and people might not pay attention because it is small. Here is the austerity program of raising taxes and cutting government spending, taking a qualitative new step to help bail out a capitalism that hasn't worked in Europe and that has crippled this little country of Cyprus. The step taken to try to fix the problem is to literally reach into the private insured bank accounts of people in the local banks in Cyprus and take money out of it to pay for fixing this broken system. For all working people, and not just in Europe, here in the United States too, this should be a wake-up call if you still need one. That we're in a situation where the most dire, unexpected, unimaginable steps are being taken to fix a system that keeps resisting being fixed so that we are required now to dip into people's checking accounts and literally take the money away. Richard, one of our viewers, Antonio Marrero, asks, student loan debts are overwhelming me and many others. What does Professor Wolf think would happen to the economy if those debts could be forgiven in personal bankruptcy? Is that even possible? Well, the law in the United States specifically prevents you from using bankruptcy to erase your student loans. Bankruptcy does allow you to erase other kinds of debts if you can't pay them, but the student loan system was set up to prevent that. So students are in a very specially bad place by virtue of this. We've never before done this. In our history as a nation, we've never before required college students to take anything remotely like this level of debt. Worse still, we're requiring students to accumulate huge amounts of debt to get bachelor's degrees, let alone more advanced degrees, at the same time that we offer the graduates the poorest job market and prospects in a generation. That's a one-two punch. You have to borrow more than you can afford to face a job which will not allow you to ever pay it off. Hence this person's very intelligent question. How is this going to work? We've solved a, a problem in our society, how to educate the next generation. And let me tell you, this is an important matter. We economists believe that the single most important factor shaping the future of any economy in the world, including the United States, is the quality and the quantity of the educated, trained labor force it produces. Colleges and universities are where we do that. If we're crippling an entire generation with debts they cannot support and jobs that will not encourage them to continue in their studies, we are, as a nation, shooting ourselves in the foot going forward. It's a, it's a demonstration of the dysfunctionality of our system. And then the question comes, could we forgive the students' debts? Well, it's an interesting idea, 
But how then do you go to the people who can't afford their credit card debts or their home debts or their mortgage debts? They're all hurting. And the students have a special claim. I give them that. And we need those students. I understand it. But we have to go at the root of a society which allows unspeakable wealth to accumulate in the hands of a tiny minority while condemning an entire generation of students to a set of burdens. We don't want them to have those burdens. We need what they can produce for us as a society. moment of clarity coming to you today from london england it's time for a little bit of honesty it's time to take that elephant in the room grab it by the horns and milk it senseless the statement i'm about to say to you is something we're never allowed to say in public it's something we're never allowed to talk about the media definitely can't even begin to mutter it you're more likely to hear the media talk about government propaganda than you are to hear this you're more likely to hear the pope say that every child molesting priest should be imprisoned for decades than you are to hear the following true statement so here it is Capitalism has a lot of problems. There it is. Is everybody okay? Everybody take a deep breath, all right? Now keep in mind, I have not said that capitalism is a failure. I haven't said that it doesn't have its strength. Those are discussions for another time. Let's just stick with this one idea for a moment. Baby steps. You gotta move by baby steps on this, alright? You might want to hold on to your blankie for the rest of this and perhaps get some Vicks Vapor Rub and just slowly caress it around this area. Seriously, why can't we discuss this? Saying that capitalism has some problems upsets people more than, than, than the following things. Racism, statutory rape, smoking while pregnant, murdering someone, murdering someone while pregnant, and wearing cross-trainer tennis shoes on a clay tennis court. Saying capitalism is faulty upsets people more than all of those things. And you can't. You can't wear the cross-trainers on the clay tennis court because it, 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 it scuffs them up. It scuffs up the court. Clay is a very delicate material, all right? And you, you have to, you have to walk it, and then you have to groom it, and then you have to pray that some soulish <laughs> doesn't walk onto it in his cross trainers for his for his weekly match with his grandmother. Capitalism is very unstable, and any economist willing to be honest with you would tell you the same. There are three. The National Bureau of Economic Research says there have been 11 major downturns in the past 75 years. That's more going down than Jenna Jameson. You add on top of that that capitalism requires infinite growth on a globe with finite resources, and you have what Houston would call a problem. Oh, that's right. We cut the funding to NASA, so there's no more Houston. So we're going to have to change that expression to, like, Dale, we have a problem. Whenever capitalism yells, Dale, we have a problem, you know who comes to the rescue? Socialism. That's right. Social programs like welfare and Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid have made it so that unregulated capitalism doesn't eat itself alive. 
yet. Then when the banks collapse and the housing market collapses and the big auto companies collapse, who saves the day? Massive socialist bailouts. I'm just saying, there's something wrong with an economic system that has to tag team a different system into the match because it keeps getting knocked the out. So all I'm asking for is a rational adult discussion on ways to create an actual sustainable society. Now I know sustainable sounds like a hippy dippy tree hugging word motherfucker, but no, sustainable just means can go on forever. What we have now is an unsustainable model, also known as a devour everything now and it on the future model. It's fun, right? Right now we're in the devour part of it. Very soon we'll be living in the part of it. An example of an alternative is a resource-based economy. This is where we calculate all the stuff on Earth, you know, the resources that make the things we like to wear and eat, and we base our economy on that. That way we don't run out of things to wear and eat. Because when we run out of things to wear and eat, people die. And when we run out of people, there's nobody left to have sex with. And even a Jersey Shore d should understand that train of thought. Listen, if we continue down this path, there will be no more Let's have this conversation like adults, rather than flipping out and running away with your fingers in your ears, as if I just said Jimmy Savile and Jerry Sandusky were simply misunderstood pillars of the community. I hear them squeal, I see them preen. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things, like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee Camp. .net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. In an hour or two, we will front page of the Washington Post on May 29th delivered a message that we're hearing elsewhere in the corporate media. The economy is starting to roar back. Economy shows some endurance was the headline with the subhead housing prices, consumer confidence jump. So what exactly is the good news? The Post tells us that the stock market is up 16% this year so far. Housing prices are up 10% in 20 major cities. Now, that's probably not exactly broadly felt, but the Post says there's something for everyone. Quote, and lower and middle income consumers have benefited from falling gasoline prices. Close quote. Well, okay, the message here is that everyone's getting something. But, of course, rich people are going to enjoy the benefits of lower gas prices and rising home prices, too. Look at the numbers a little closer, and you see that gas prices dropping is not likely to have an enormous impact on most families. What would? Well, how about wages? According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, average weekly wages decreased by 1% over the most recent annual period. So a more realistic view of the U.S. economy might go something like this. If you own stocks, stock prices are going up. If you own a home, home prices are going up. And if you work for a living, wages are going down. That's not exactly great news for most people. Don't you just 
speak of the commonwealth To become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire gate community Wealthiest anomalies with their own privatized police while the silent majority will say for the press, obey the corporate American dream. IMF. Whoops. Our bad. Uh. The IMF is set to admit that it made serious mistakes in the handling of the sovereign debt crisis in Greece, according to internal reports due to be published later on last night. Documents presented to the funds board last Friday will reveal that the Washington-based organization underestimated the damage austerity would cause to the eurozone, which has required uh, two bailouts of the country, which has required two bailouts in the past three years. So there you have it. The IMF, our bad. Sorry about destroying your country. Sorry about the incredible pain that we have inflicted upon you, Greece. Sorry about the massive rise in suicides, the massive food insecurity by many of your citizens. Sorry about the huge increase in prostitution that has come about as a function of this. The... Um, the stress, the havoc, the demoralization. What are you going to do? Can we take a mulligan on that? Anybody? Anybody? Nice. Well, at least I guess they're coming out and, and uh, acknowledging it. Nothing from the European Commission or anybody else who imposed that on Greece. Thank heaven for small favors again, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I continue to think that the biggest challenge that we are facing right now is not so much the Patriot Act, is not so much the the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, and the FISA courts that it produced. I think these are bad pieces of legislation. But I continue to believe that the biggest problem that we're facing right now is the Reaganomics doctrine that government functions should be outsourced to private for-profit corporations. 
and that among those government functions are are things that we really, really do need to be holding close to our vest. We need, you know, our prison industry. If if we're gonna if we're gonna use the power of the state to imprison people, it should be to rehabilitate them or to protect society from them, not so somebody can make a dollar off it. it our military. If we are going to, if we're gonna have a large, strong, capable military, it should be to protect the United States and our strategic interests around the world. It should not be so that Dick Cheney's old company, Halliburton, which was just inches away from bankruptcy when he was selected by the Supreme Court to be vice president of the United States in 2000, which Joe Biden pointed out today. Let me digress for just a moment. Joe Biden, or it was in today's news, perhaps it was last night that he said it, but Joe Biden came out and said Al Gore was actually elected president. And he did the right thing for the republic when we had this bad decision by the Supreme Court and, and you know, didn't step into office. Now, you can argue whether Al Gore saying, okay, I'm going to go along with the Supreme Court is the right thing or not. I'm guessing, had he not done that, I mean, it, he would have been facing, you know, a, a court that might have even ordered his imprisonment. I mean, who knows? I mean, this, this would have been a genuine constitutional crisis of the type that that Americans thought was going to happen in 1800, in the election of 1800. But, you know, all that said, uh, and I, I, I find it just fascinating, you know, that, that, that the Vice President of the United States right now Joe Biden comes out and says, ah, uh, yeah, Al Gore is actually like the President of the United States. Finally, somebody's telling the truth about it. But, but anyhow, that, all, all that aside, the big problem that I see is this Reaganomics doctrine that we should be handing this stuff off to private for-profit corporations, a doctrine that has been supported by the Supreme Court. So now you have private for-profit corporations that are profiting off the national security state, and thus have an incentive to lobby for more and more snooping, more and more spying, more and more big contracts, more and more giant computers, more and more and more big data centers, more and more big brother. They've become the tail that's wagging the dog of government. Because the Supreme Court legalized it, and 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 Reagan turned it into a theology. In the next in the next hour, Richard Vigory is going to drop by the the uh, uber conservative, and we're going to talk about prison reform. And uh, you know that these guys are still pitching. Hey, private prisons are the answer to everything. No, and private defense contractors are not the answer. And and you know. Uh, spying contractors are not the answer to everything. In fact, private spying contractors are the problem. We should not be outsourcing. There, you know, there are just some things you don't outsource. We should not be outsourcing legislation. Consider this. Several times a year, there's this group called the American Legislative Exchange Council 
that gets together with virtually entirely Republican state legislators. There are a few Democrats who are members, but it's almost entirely Republicans. They get together at various places around the country, and one-to-one, legislator-to-lobbyist, corporations and Republican legislators sit in the room together and come up with what they call model legislation. They write legislation to take back and, and introduce into the states. And in most cases, it is, it's not actually even written at these ALEC meetings. It's written by the corporations long before their lobbyists show up at the ALEC meetings. They bring it to the ALEC meetings, lay it out for the Republican lawmakers, inspection and approval, and maybe a few tweaks here and there. And then the Republicans take it back to their states and introduce it as law. And we've seen this in state after state after state with law after after law after law, from things like the stand your ground laws to the voter suppression laws, to laws making it harder to to to, uh, to prosecute corporations for malfeasance, laws you know the the uh, uh, so-called tort reform laws. I mean, it just goes on. So we've even outsourced legislation legally by. Again, by Supreme Court doctrine, the Supreme Court says, this is just fine. You can't pass a law against this. It's free speech. These corporations are people, and their money is speech. And so now we have this national security state, which has conservatives and libertarians a little concerned, many of them a lot concerned, and liberals and progressives a lot concerned. But I think even worse, we have a national security industry that is self-perpetuating and and doing everything it can to grow itself like a cancer. There are now new proposals in Congress that, I hope you're sitting down for this, would make it easier on the banks. Oh, wow, I didn't see this coming. And it turns out, guess who's writing them? The bank lobbyists. Woo! Well, New York Times has a terrific story on it. Uh, it's in their deal book section by Eric Lipton and Ben Protests. Uh, so they explain this bill would exempt broad swaths of trades from new regulation. Oh, terrific! Deregulated trading by the banks. I bet nothing will go wrong, just like in 2008. So uh, how did they do that? Of course, they purchased uh, most of the congressmen on the Republican side. Well, almost all the congressmen on the Republican side, and most of them on the Democratic side. So I love the description of how the bill got written. That's why I'm telling you this story. Okay? They explain, in a sign of Wall Street's resurgent influence in Washington, I like that euphemism, uh, Citigroup's recommendations were reflected in more than 70 lines of the House Committee's 85-line bill. In other words, Citigroup, one of the banks affected, writes 70 out of 85 lines and hands it to the congressman. That's resurgent influence. Hey, look, they're telling it out like it is, and it is a good 
news story. How would I have written it? <laughs> the paid uh, uh, congressmen that represent the banks and none of you decided that they would simply take the, what the bank said and put it in the bill. In fact, look at this next line from the New York Times. Two crucial paragraphs prepared by Citigroup in conjunction with other Wall Street banks were copied nearly word for word. Lawmakers changed two words to make them plural. <laughs> I like it. Oh, I can't really think of any changes. Oh, let's make those two things plural. Okay, so banks, have at it, Hoss. Do you know how large the derivatives market is? This legislation would affect the derivatives market. This is always my favorite fact. We used to say $600 trillion, but in this article, they mentioned it's $700 trillion market. $700 trillion. Nobody could even fathom that kind of money, and we should deregulate that market so they could take more risks with it. That sounds like a terrific idea. Well, um, how in the world did they come up with this idea? Well, as you just saw, that the bankers literally wrote the legislation for them. Now, why? Well, the New York Times explains. The lawmakers who this month supported the bills, championed by Wall Street, received twice as much in contributions from financial institutions compared with those who opposed them. Huh, interesting. Oh, so they got legalized bribes, and that's why they took the legislation word for word from the bank lobbyists. This is how our government works. Look, I'm trying to shake people out of their complacency, because they still think we have a democracy. Does this look like a democracy to you? This is a joke, man. And you think it's just Republicans? Get a load of this. But most of the Democrats on the committee, along with 31 Republicans, came to the industry's defense, including seven freshman Democrats, most of whom have started to receive donations this year from political action committees of Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and other financial institutions, records show. Now, if all that wasn't enough, the guy who proposed this in the first place is a Democrat from Connecticut, Jim Himes. Jim uh, Himes is also a former Goldman Sachs banker. So, it's not enough just to buy the existing congressman. They plant congressmen in there. And he's a Democrat. Now, the one good thing I'll give Jim Himes, and I've criticized him for this specific bill in the past, and I say he's part and parcel of the problem, he is, at least he's slightly honest about it. When asked about it, he said, look, I won't dispute for one second the problems of a system that demands immense amount of fundraisers by its legislators. Well, that's the God's honest truth. Now, if you need to fundraise an immense amount of money, and the banks have that immense amount of money, gee, I wonder who you're going to let write uh, the legislation for you. You think they went to the constituents in Connecticut or other places and were like, hey, Bob, what do you think we should put in this bill? I mean, we're endangering some of your money that you put into the bank. Oh, right, great. No, they didn't ask you, man. They asked the guys who write their checks for them. In fact, some new group of freshman Democrats were taking, taking on a tour of Wall Street. It's awesome. I mean, it's so brazen. They got to meet with Jamie Dimon. They were so excited. Oh, it's our boss, the guy who runs J.P. Morgan. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. What other bills would you need, sir? This is sick, man. And Representative Himes also says... It's appalling, it's disgusting, it's wasteful, and it opens the possibility of conflicts of interest and corruption. It's unfortunately the world we live in. And there you have it. That's probably the most honest thing Jim Himes or any other congressman has ever said. Yes, we're disgusting. We live in a pool of corruption and filth. Hey, it's our world, though. You know, there's one thing we could do about it. We could change it. Oh, I got it. Let's elect a guy who will run out of change twice. 
Wait a minute. We already tried that. That didn't work. Look, the only way you change any of this is by getting money out of politics. If you don't do that, the Jim Himes of the world will run in this. They might not like it, or they might revel in it. I don't really know what his motivation is. But the system is what it is, and it will always produce this result. It's a result that does not work for you. It's not meant for you. It's meant for the donors. It works for the donors. In this case, the financial industry. Now, you know how I think we should get out of it. Wolf-pack.com and a wolf pack. You pass an amendment and you put an end to all this nonsense. They live in a vat of corruption. They're never going to do it themselves. But we can take it to the states. And look, the founders were brilliant. They put an... Part of the Constitution is called Article 5. That they said every once in a while Congress will get too corrupt. And what you'll have to do is a convention called by the states to put an amendment in there to fix Congress. This is exactly the time to do it. I mean, it's almost like Da Vinci Code. They put an article in there, which we haven't used yet. They said, basically, in case of emergency, break glass. Use this article. Have a... Article 5 Convention to propose an amendment to the Constitution. The states have done it 233 times. There's never been a runaway convention. You do it for a specific amendment, and in this case, it's to get money out of politics. Otherwise, we have already lost our democracy, and our congressmen brazenly admitted they're not. They, Jim Himes is not the representative from Connecticut, he's the representative from Goldman Sachs. Wolf PAC.com. Become a member and become a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. you rebutted the two callers at the end of the last episode you know the one about the i heard that story on the david Packman show and i listened to it about that 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 teacher being arrested for for swearing and i think that might turn into one of those like you get told hey your behavior is offensive and then you turn around and say well yeah it might be offensive but that's offensive too and then it turned into the police probably having to make a choice and in this situation they definitely chose <laughs> in my opinion the, the wrong thing i think you know if you can walk around with images showing that you know it would have to be in an r-rated movie if it was presented in a film some of those pictures of of, of aborted fetuses as you said are you know partial birth abortions or things like that. that that would be in an r-rated movie but you know if my wife wanted to walk around with her shirt off she'd be arrested and she'd be told that her body is seen so i think our whole obscenity profanity laws as they stand there's a lot wrong with them let's just say that but i think your point about how that demeans a woman's knowledge of, of what her medical procedure actually is is is, is a dead-on point um the, my problem with the thing about the ag gag at least you know, I know there have been some people that have actually filed, uh, gotten jobs under false names, gone into these factory farms and exposed horrible things that happen. Now, although I applaud what they did there, there is actually some things like presenting yourself to someone that you're not on a job application, things like that, that either are illegal or people are trying to make illegal. But the thing I heard about that was really frustrating, the first prosecution 
or arrest, excuse me, underneath this new ag gag bill, I forget which state I heard about it on Citizen Radio, was a woman who was standing on public property, public property, filming something that was going on on private property. Now, I don't have a problem with that at all, and there, there's no whistleblowing, government-spying comparison here. If, if I'm walking down a public street and there's a cop sitting next to me and I'm, you know, just for instance here, trying to sell somebody drugs and the cop hears me, there's no, you know, listening in or spying or Fourth Amendment. There's no expectation of privacy when I'm on private property. And if you can be seen from private property, there's no expectation of privacy. So those people who are dragging that poor cow who couldn't even walk, and that woman took the video of it, or when people are videoing police from their own porch, the police on a public street, you know, beating somebody, there's nothing wrong with any of that. So I also think that's where the comparison might break down as well. But anyway, thanks for watching, Take care. Hi, Jay. I am writing in response to the really manipulative and, I thought, incredibly unfair question, what's so offensive about aborted fetuses? Uh, ultimately, the question wasn't even really worth answering, but I would like to give a hypothetical by way of answering it. So if I were to stand outside of a fertility clinic and I were to bring to that clinic a poster that has big text on it said, half of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. And I accompanied this poster with a picture of a bloody miscarried fetus and perhaps even a dead mother. Um, let's say somebody took offense at that poster. There is no burden on that person to explain why she found the truth, because it is true, offensive. Um, she is allowed to take offense at my poster. Just as the woman at the abortion clinic is certainly in her right to find a poster offensive. The crucial and only relevant fact to address in this case is to look at how each party responded to being offended. So the woman who was offended at the poster responded by voicing her displeasure with strong language. The anti-abortionists who were offended at her strong language responded by having the source of their offense arrested. I wanted to point out that godless liberals have just as much a right to have our morals and sensibilities offended as any upstanding Christian. The price of living together is that sometimes we offend each other. And the way to judge the strength of our society is to see how we react to these inevitable offenses. And this particular case shows to me a weak and asymmetrical society. Hi, Jay. This is Robert in Richmond, Virginia. I've been following your show for a few years, and I agree with you about half the time. But your June 18th episode on racism motivated me to call in. First, I need to give you a bit of background. I'm an atheist now, but half my lifetime ago, I was a Southern Baptist minister. As you probably know, one of the central doctrines of Christianity is the concept of original sin. The idea that we're all born guilty, we come into this world with a debt of sin already on our souls. This is the message I delivered from the pulpit every Sunday, and was also one of the reasons I left the ministry and religion as a whole. Fast-forwarding to your podcast, 
Several times I heard the phrase white privilege tossed around. Normally I just fast forward, but I listened to the entire show and I realized it was taking on an eerily familiar sound. That's when I realized it was the same message I had been preaching all those years ago. White privilege is the secular version of original sin. All white people are born guilty. We come into this world with a debt of oppression already on our souls. At least that's the message we're being given. When you asked your question to the listeners, what do you like about your race? You played messages from several white callers, and it sounded like one giant mea culpa. It took on a confessional tone. Everyone was seeking redemption for the sin of being born to light-skinned European ancestors. A few of your commentators seem mystified as to why an unemployed person from Appalachia would vote for the same oppressive conservatives as million-dollar-a-year corporate CEO, their only common ground being their so-called whiteness. Perhaps it's very simple. It's basic self-esteem. Finances can change, but we cannot change the way we're born. The Republican Tea Party is not asking them to feel guilt or shame for the way they were born. No one should be expected to apologize for just being who they are. While I embrace many progressive values, I cannot and I will not embrace self-hate. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So the, the, the conversation on white privilege has been going on on this show for a couple of years now, on and off, obviously. And it's, you know, I think in that time, we've made some progress, started with sort of really rudimentary white privilege 101 sort of stuff and, and have gone on to bigger and better, more in-depth things, especially, at, you know, as of late, uh, that, you know, the invention of whiteness and, and the, the detrimental impact that racism has not only on the oppressed, but on the privileged and so it's been quite a while since I've gotten, uh, you know, a call or m- message of any kind from someone really, uh, you know, counterpointing the concept of white privilege in and of itself. And, you know, in, in the past, I've definitely gotten the messages saying, you know, it's bullshit, it doesn't exist, you don't know what you're talking about, and so on. But we just heard this call from Robert in Richmond, who said kind of something along those lines, but it was different. It was distinctly different. Uh, and so I honestly don't know if Robert understands the, the the concept of white privilege and just disagrees with how he thinks people, you know, liberals or white people in general or, you know, anti-racists, activists are, uh, you know, talking about it and, and trying to make people, you know, white people feel guilty. Uh, you know, so I don't know. So I will address what he said, but I'll also take a step back and kind of go over uh, the basics, just to make sure we're all on the same page. So, you know, at, at its essence, White privilege is really nothing more than the privilege of being the majority. And so in America, white people are the majority. In America, black people were slaves and are still the minority. And so they have a legacy of oppression that they have to overcome. And white people just don't. So we have the privilege of not having the burden of that legacy of oppression and we're thought of as normal. And so this plays itself out in, you know, myriad of ways, countless ways. And, but the interesting thing about privilege is that, you know, when you are a privileged person in, in whatever way you are, but you know, I'll just speak as a white person. So when you're a white person and you have your 
privilege. It, it's like a body of water you're swimming in. You don't, you know, when you're actually submerged in water, you don't necessarily feel wet. I mean, you feel that you're in water, but it's not like, you know, it's not like when you get sprayed with a hose and you feel wet and cold. It's different. And so, you know, you, you don't really feel it until you start to come out. And so stepping out of that pool of privilege, the wind hits you and it feels cold and really uncomfortable. That's the feeling of coming to understand what white privilege is. That's what that really uncomfortable feeling is. You're still wet, but you really notice it. And that's what people react to. That That's how people feel. That's what makes people feel guilty in one way or another. And so that's what Robert was sort of reacting to. The, the people who were calling into the show, you know, expressing the, this sense of guilt over being white. And I don't think that that's wrong. I think that people probably do feel uh, guilty, but there's more than one type of guilty people can feel. Robert interpreted the guilt people were expressing as similar to original sin. Th- this concept that we, you know, the moment we're born, we've done something wrong. And I don't think that that's it even a little bit. I don't think that any white people or, you know, minorities, you know, oppressed people of any kind think if you are a privileged person, you have to apologize for it. I don't think that's how people think. Um, I, and I definitely don't think that's how people should think. What it means is it, it's much more uh, similar to survivor's guilt. When you're put in a you know, similar situation to someone else, but by no fault of your own, you come out better than they did. Either you survive and they die, or you're unharmed and they're badly injured. But there's nothing you could have done. There's nothing they could have done. It just is what it is. You came out better than the other person, and then you feel guilty for it. That's what the guilt associated with white privilege is. So hopefully that cleared things up for Robert wherever his opinions on the subject actually lay. Uh, but, you know, maybe for you too, even if you know everything about this and you know exactly uh, what I'm talking about, it's always nice to get a little refresher and maybe I said something, you know, in a different way that will give you a, a, a fresh perspective on an argument that you can make when you're out in the real world uh, having this conversation with someone else. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please do that. There are lots of easy ways to do it, everything from iTunes or the standard RSS feed to great uh, you know smartphone apps that you can use that's what uh, that's what all the kids are doing these days stitcher is is big everyone loves that and then there's even a best of the left app made specifically for the show built for iphone and android thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations that is absolutely how the program survives stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on facebook and twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from best of the left dot com Shadow bases the floor.